Due to the polling, the whole country expected that we were going to get a Labor government. Everyone, from the Liberal Party to the Labor Party, to the union movement, to the environment movement, to a whole bunch of really engaged voters are like trying to reassess and reorientate it in, in a situation which was not what was expected. This is Nikki Eisen. I'm a co-founder of Community Power Agency and a research associate here at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS. And in this episode, with the benefit of hindsight, we'll look back at the election. What went right? What went wrong? And what we can learn about the climate campaign? So back before May 18, we thought we were in a climate election. Why do you think that was? Well, we were in a climate election. We had seen extreme weather events from bushfires in the middle of Tasmania that had never burnt. 40 fires burning across the state for Tasmania. It is very to bushfires in the middle of winter. Massive floods that killed livestock in Townsville and actually two Aboriginal people's lives. As floodwaters begin to recede in Townsville, police have made a tragic discovery. The and then we had heat waves across summer that were unprecedented. An extreme heat wave is sweeping across much of the country today. Fruit cooked. Temperatures soaring up to a blistering 38 you degrees. Know, we could see the impacts of climate uh, in our day-to-day lives and that really connected with people. Meanwhile, this is happening all over the world and you had people like Greta Thunberg. I am here to say our house is on fire. Um, leading the Fridays for the Future and that led to the school strikes here in Australia. You had the Big Stop Adani campaign. I think it was really catalysed by the IPCC, the International Government, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change 1.5 degree report last year. According to the IPCC, we are less than 12 years away from not being able to undo our mistakes. 12 years to be getting out of coal to ensure that we don't lose all of the reef. The rate of new coral growth in the reef has dropped by 89%. And all of the Pacific Islands. Well, many Pacific Islands are at the sharp end of global warming. So, you know, there was a culmination of a whole range of things in the lead up to, to the election. And certainly, you know, there were places around the country that did vote for climate change and made it a really top priority. But was it priority enough? This is Think Sustainability. I'm Nina Kopel. I don't know how much weight we should be putting on polls in any form following this last election, but there were polls that said that people were really concerned about climate change. Yes. How were you feeling? Did you feel like people were going to be voting with climate change in mind potentially leading to a non-liberal win? That was certainly the indication, the narrative, the polling and things like that. I think if we just talk about polling for a second, the key thing that we didn't know because the pollsters didn't tell us was how many undecided voters there were. So uh, Peter Lewis from Essential Media said, the thing that we will never do again is uh, present a two-party preferred number in polling that adds up to 100 People were asked if they would vote Liberal or Labor and not offered any alternatives. That both silences and disenfranchise the unengaged. People potentially voting for minority parties. Who are the people we need to be reaching out to and the people who in this uh, country where we have compulsory voting are the people that actually helps decide elections. You know, it was a very close election, 
both parties didn't do well as well as they thought in their primary vote. But what happened is you saw a lot of people vote for minor parties that then saw a flow in preferences to the to the Liberal Party. So yeah, I think that if you look at the number of people who were really engaged, particularly on the progressive side of politics who hadn't been engaged before, there was a really strong sentiment around climate and I think that did sway a number of people's votes. And if you look at places like Indi, and Warringah, you know, they were climate elections. Indi and Warringah are just two electorates out of 151 in Australia. But together, they can teach us a lot about what went right and wrong for climate in the last election. In Warringah, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott lost his seat in an area that had been safely conservative for close to a century. I think what you saw was a groundswell of people in the Warringah electorate who said, we no longer want this person who has been a climate blocker, a climate saboteur, if you will, for over a decade. We no longer want him to represent our interests and us in Parliament. And I think that there were reasons beyond climate change, but climate change was really the focal point. Over the next few days and weeks, I suspect there will be a great deal of analysis of the part that climate change did or did not play uh, in the Ringer outcome. And let me just say this as my first word, if not necessarily my last word, on this subject. Where climate change is a moral issue, we Liberals do it tough. But where climate change is an economic issue, as a result tonight shows, we do very, very well. The version I've heard of that is when climate change is an immoral issue, the progressive side of politics wins, and that was certainly the case in places like Warringah. But where they vote based on economics, that they vote not to act on climate, I disagree. I think in places like Indi, people voted for climate action based on the local economic benefits of clean energy. Abbott's categorisation of climate change voters as being either morally or economically focused might work in his electorate, but there are some areas where campaigns are blurring the boundaries. We have been unapologetic about the agenda of this campaign. This is Helen Haynes, independent for Indi, giving her victory speech on the night of the election. And foremost in that agenda was action on climate. Indi wants action on climate. You know, this is a traditionally conservative electorate that the uh, Liberal Party held for many, many years. And then you saw a groundswell in 2013 of local people going, no, we don't like similar, you know, the the, the local candidate, the local member there was uh, Sophie Mirabella and she was similarly divisive like Tony Abbott and very hard right wing uh local member and people didn't like that. And you had a groundswell that led to Voices for Indi that led to the election of Cathy McGowan. And what was really interesting is that those people who worked to try and get an independent voice into parliament that really represented that regional constituency that did want to see, you know, more public transport, greater healthcare and things like that, 
at the same time you saw the emergence of community renewable energy. These started as community grassroots initiatives. And so those people who were doing work around independence in an election context also went, well, let's do something around independence in an energy context. And they laid the groundwork over the last six years to be able to go, actually, renewable energy is really good for our region. We can go to 100% renewables, we can lower our power bills, we can help keep the money that we spend on our power bills circulating in the local economy. Uh, So there are all of these different benefits. And then what you saw is as Kathy McGowan retired, Voices for Indi run a process where they selected who they wanted their independent candidate to be. That was Helen Haynes. Now it's time to pass on the baton. Helen Haynes is an excellent candidate and she's ready to go. Who had been involved in some of the community energy groups and was able to talk really authentically about how acting on climate change would benefit the electorate of Indi and point to all of these great examples of projects that are going ahead. So they made it really real. Helen Haynes wasn't just talking about economics, and she wasn't just talking about the environment. She was highlighting the way her community was already working to bring them both together. I see our communities being directly impacted by the changing climate, and I see the leadership from many of our people, young and old, working together to create renewable energy solutions when governments have failed to provide... And, you know, she got support not just in those sort of tree-change communities of Yakandanda, but in the the regional centres like Wodonga and Wangaratta and places like that. So it's, you know, it's not just, you know, some tree changes. And I think that there's a model that we need to be looking at more across particularly regional Australia. Indi proved that the economic benefits of renewable energy can make for a powerful campaign. But it's a message that was missed in most of Australia. After the election, hashtag Quexit emerged, with people tweeting things like, I'd like to thank the fellow hashtag Queensland people for making my future a grim one. Upside down smiley face. Hashtag election 2019 results. Hashtag Quexit. And... I am calling it. It's time for Quexit. You've really screwed us, Queensland. Hashtag Australia votes 2019. Hashtag Ozpol. Hashtag Quexit. I think there's a whole bunch of stuff around Queensland and maybe I'll try and unpack some of it. I think the first thing is there was a swing to the more conservative side of politics, particularly the minor parties that are in Queensland that translated to large square swings in a couple of places. Uh so that is a, a real thing. Uh, you know, Queens, my mum is from Queensland. My partner is from Queensland. Queensland is an amazing state and it's not going anywhere. I think that there's a few things. One is we didn't talk about renewable energy very much as a movement in the election. We talked about climate change. We talked about stopping Adani. We didn't talk about renewable energy particularly. So that's the first thing. So we had a, a – we set a – there was the conditions were created for a jobs versus environment narrative, even though you know the amount of jobs in mines like the Adani are very small, even though there are amazing jobs happening in Queensland already in the renewables industry, and even though you know there's a whole range of economic diversification options in uh, tourism, in manufacturing, in a, in a whole range of things. So yeah, it, it was a highly polarised context. There were some things that we could have done differently to reduce the polarisation. And I think we're learning those lessons at the moment. 
why the federal election campaign in Queensland failed to deliver the message that climate and economy can go together. Nikki says the Victorian state government has succeeded. Uh, I actually wrote an opinion piece for the, the Age where I look at what the Victorian government has really done to show what the current and future jobs look like as we act on climate change and show how everyone can be a winner as we act on climate change. The Victorian state government ran a reverse auction program, looking for ideas to fund that would boost the renewable sector and employment. It's about encouraging people to kind of question the norm and really encouraging people to... That has led to the retooling of an old car plant in Geelong to now manufacture wind turbines. It's led to the establishment of a new renewable energy training program in Ballarat that's going to train local people to be uh, operators and maintenance staff on the wind and solar projects. Uh, And it's also led to a whole range of community benefit funds and um, new opportunities and ways of engaging and communities directly benefiting from large-scale renewable energy. So, you know, this is not just a conversation around coal versus renewables, but what does a, a future look like where we act on climate change and enjoy the economic benefits of it? And that's a complex narrative that's difficult to cut through in a soundbite-based election, but we need to be doing more work to lay the groundwork. And I think state governments, particularly the Queensland state government, needs to be doing more to make that easier for people like us to do. And certainly I would say the Victorian government has done that. Let's see what happens in the next 18 months in the lead-up to the Queensland state election. I mean, it's interesting because I'm framing this as a discussion about an, a federal election and here we are talking about state governance. Yeah. Is that the problem here, that really these solutions are being left to state governments and then we ask for solutions from the federal government that they aren't able to give us? So climate change is an issue that works at every single level of government. It certainly would be easier if we had federal leadership to act on climate change and Australia played a much more proactive and positive role in the international arena. But in the absence of that federal action, there is a huge amount that state governments can do. Well, not least that our largest uh, contribution to climate change is through exports of fossil fuels and through coal-fired power stations. Now, state governments are responsible for approving mines uh, and they're also responsible for, uh, you know, electricity. You know, they are, the national electricity law is actually state-by-state legislation. So we need to be doing, you know, state governments do have a really, really big role to play here. That would be made easier if the federal government took a leadership role, but in the absence of that leadership role, state governments need to step up even more. So some of the things that the Liberal Party promised during the election campaign, there was their emission reduction target, so 26 to 28% by 2030, their Climate Solutions Fund plan, Snowy 2.0. Are these things that you think we can work with in order to enact positive change? I would say it's challenging. I think the Battery of the Nation and Snowy 2.0 are, if we want to move to renewable energy quickly, they are good initiatives. If you want to move to renewable energy slowly, they're not actually needed yet. Uh, so you know, I, there's a way to work with those two initiatives. 
the 26 to 28% target is woefully low and we're not even meeting that, so that is a big problem. And then the Climate Solution Fund, which is just a rebranding of the Emissions Reduction Fund, uh, is currently under review um, and the review is looking about whether that funding can be used to upgrade coal-fired power stations. So I don't think it's a good program. They're looking to make it a worse program you know, I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to hold this government to account. The federal government and the ideological opposition to acting on climate and to renewables in the federal coalition is really out of step with what is happening in the world, both in terms of the public sentiment and desire for people for leadership on climate change, but also the economics. We have ageing coal-fired power stations in Australia. They need to be replaced by something. They are going to be replaced by the cheapest form of new generation, and that will be solar, wind, battery storage, pumped hydro, and other firming solutions. The Reserve Bank gets this. The economic regulator gets this. BHP gets this. You know, Blue Scope Steel, uh, you know, so many different companies get this. State governments are starting to get it. There's only so long uh, the federal government can hold back the tide of these global economic trends and global economic realities. Uh, you know, so it, it will be very difficult for them to continue to hold the line that they currently hold. They're going to give it a red-hot go, but I think it's going to be much more difficult this term of government than it has been for the last two. So... I think there is a lot of disappointment, but you know, I don't think there is any illusions that Labor was going to be this you know, great climate leader. They certainly had a lot better policies than the Liberal Party does and the National Party do. But they, you know, if you compare the science to what the Labor Party was proposing, you know, there's still quite a long way to go. So, you know, that's something that people keep in the back of their mind. And then the third thing is a huge amount of determination. If we want to make sure that we have a livable future and a safe future for people living now, but also people you know, who are yet to be born for the species across the planet, particularly the most vulnerable in our societies, we don't have a choice. We've got to keep going. And so I think you see that determination across the movement, tinged by sadness, but certainly a huge amount of determination and people getting fired up. You've been listening to Think Sustainability, which is made in the studios of 2SER with the support of the Institute for Sustainable Futures. This show is made on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nations, whose people's sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nina Kopel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>